If you have a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, as we near the end of our annual vision series. So far, we've covered a lot of ground, what it means to apprentice under Jesus, our vision for Alpha in the new year, and prayer, spiritual formation, how do we become people of love? And we're just about done, but we really want to kind of end our time together by just saying, you know, if you're in for this, if you're ready to follow Jesus and practice His way in community and, and labor and work and pray and bleed for the kingdom of God to come in our city, we're just asking that you would give of your resources to this. So. We thought it would be fitting to do a money talk, just what you all woke up this morning saying yes. So first, three of you, well done. Um, A disclaimer, Um, I know that when pastors talk about money, it's just weird. There's so much, the the West Coast word for it is an emotional trigger, which is West Coast for we just don't want to talk about that. Um, And uh, I know that. And I don't, there's this weird conspiracy between you and me, I don't want to teach on money you don't want me to teach on money. So we just don't talk about it in the church, right? So there's a thing there. Um, You know that we're raising money for Holiday Park Church of God and our dream, we've already been over the top generous over the last year, but our dream is that between now and the end of the capital campaign, which is December 31st, that we raise as much money as possible. I mean, my dream would be a million or two million dollars. I know we have that money in our community. We just have to release it. And that we move into this building in the new year with as close to debt-free as possible. And we're just, it's not a big deal. It's just a new beautiful space and we're off to what Jesus has for us. So, I know that, you know that. We're not gonna talk about any of that. Just relax. I'm not gonna ask you to give money to the building. I'm not gonna have you turn to Nehemiah and give you an allegorical reading of a weird Old Testament story to manipulate you to get more cash out of you. Not going to happen. We're just gonna open our Bibles to Jesus of Nazareth and we're gonna talk about what he has to say about money. It should be really fun. Um, By fun, I mean horrible. But um, (laughs) for me and three of you, all right. To start off, One of the many things Jesus is famous for is turning our vision of the good life on its head. Case in point, Jesus said this about money. Read this with me. It is more blessed to give than to receive. The word blessed there in Greek is makarios, and it literally means happy. One translation has, there is more happiness in giving than in receiving, or in a life of generosity than a life of greed or hedonism or materialism. Now, in all honesty, for many years, if I were to shoot straight with you, I just disagreed with Jesus on this one. I never would have said that to you or even to myself out loud, but in the interior of my heart, it was true. I've been following Jesus for as long as I can remember, and I've always had a hard time trusting what Jesus has to say on money and generosity. I think I've been the slowest to dethaw to actually trust Jesus' vision. For years, again, if I was honest, I thought that Jesus' teachings on the subject were right, but not all that smart. Mean as if those are two separate things. That's a whole other teaching. They're not. But meaning I thought that generosity was the right thing to do, like as in it's the moral right thing to do in the Bible, but not the smart or intelligent way to a happy life. 
Now, of course, all sorts of social science research has shown that, shocker, Jesus was way ahead of his time. Not that we need research to validate our trust in Jesus or the New Testament, but I find it fascinating. Sociologists Christian Smith and Hilary Davidson in their book, The Paradox of Generosity, summarize the data and basically conclude that generous people are happier, are healthier, they live longer, they have lower levels of depression and anxiety, they're more interested in personal growth, they have better long-term relationships, etc. They write, quote, people rightly say that money cannot buy happiness, but money and happiness are still related in a curious way. Happiness can be the result not of spending money, more money on oneself, but rather of giving money away to others. The data examined here show this not to be simply a nice idea, but a social scientific fact. When you examine the empirical evidence, it turns out that the Western formula of more money equals more happiness is simply not true. Richard Foster writes this, quote, the unreasoned boast abounds that the good life is found in accumulation. Or in our city, which is a little bit more about hedonism than materialism, the good life is found in eating out three times a day. That more is better. Indeed, we often accept this notion without question with the result that the lust for affluence in contemporary society has become psychotic, it has completely touched, lost touch with reality. I love that he calls it psychotic, meaning it does not align with reality, with the way things actually are. It comes as no surprise that Jesus, who cares a lot about how happy we become, because all of that is tied to how loving we become, which for him is the end goal of the spiritual journey, that he has a lot to say about money. Scholars estimate that 25% of Jesus' teachings have to do with money at some level. 25, can you imagine if every fourth sermon at Bridgetown Church was about money? Our church would be way smaller but I would be really well paid. Um, but we would shrink really fast. I think this is my third teaching on money in 16 years. Just compare and contrast that with Jesus. Jesus spent so much time on the subject, which is fascinating. He's not a rabbi leading a congregation or a synagogue, you know, needing to raise money for the annual budget and you know, pay for an associate rabbi, because we really have a lot of people at the synagogue this year. He's not raising money for a building project at the temple in Jerusalem. He's not even raising money for the poor like Paul is in the New Testament. He's just interested in the human heart. He's always interested in the human heart, in freedom and love and life with God. And so for Jesus, as best I can tell, money is about so much more than money. It's about the interiority of our being. To that end, let's take a look at one of Jesus' many, so much we could say about this. Let's just narrow it down. Let's take a look at Jesus' teaching on the practice of tithing. Luke chapter 11, take a look with me at verse 33. Jesus says this, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Keep in mind, this is the first century. Jesus is saying this long before electricity and the light bulb. A lamp was made from oil and in a ceramic pot, and it was very expensive to light, meaning nobody would ever do this. 
Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Now, this is a metaphor. It's a familiar metaphor for Jesus. You recognize it from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He used it more than once. Next, he goes on to explain the metaphor. 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. Now, to our late modern ear, this sounds really cryptic, like, what the heck are you even saying, Jesus? It's actually not. To a first century Jew, a healthy eye or an unhealthy eye was a euphemism or a figure of speech. Notice if you have the NIV, there's a footnote after the word healthy. If you look down at the bottom of your Bible, the Greek for healthy here implies what? generous. And then there's the same for the word unhealthy, footnote. The Greek for unhealthy here implies stingy. This was a a figure of speech. It was a way of saying there are two different ways to see the world, to view reality with your eyes, so to speak, which in our time have come to be called an abundance mentality and a scarcity mentality, two very different ways of seeing life in general and money in particular. If you have an abundance mentality, you look out with your eye on the world and you see a world of abundance where we just live at God's generosity. There's plenty for everybody, plenty to go around. You see God as a generous host. We live at his hospitality. All of life is gift, everything in your life. None of it is a right, all of it is a gift. As a result, you live with gratitude toward God and generosity toward other people, in particular those in need. You have a healthy eye. You have a healthy kind of way that you view the world. But if you have a scarcity mentality, you look out on the world and you see a world of lack. The world is overpopulated, the future is bleak, there's not enough to go around, human civilization is a fierce battle over scarce resources, you need to fight to get what is yours. As a result, you see the world in such a way that often you are blind to those in need, and often instead of all the abundance and gift, you see all the things you don't have but that you still want. I want that, I want that, I want that, I need that, I need that, I need that, and you are consumed in the end by greed. If this is the kind of heart that you or I have, a first century Jew would say, oh, you guys have an unhealthy eye, or you just have an unhealthy, stingy, kind of really thwarted way that you view the world. Which is why Jesus goes on to say, see to it, 35, then, that the light within you is not darkness. This really matters. The way that you see the world, the way that you see money, the way that you interact with this, it really matters about who you become. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Back to the metaphor, meaning if you get your relationship to money right and generosity right, your view of the world, which is really your view of God, then everything else will take care of itself. Now, this is all great, but it's a little bit conceptual, which is why Luke goes on. Remember the chapter or the paragraph there break, that title there, none of that is in the original Greek. It's just that line to the next line. Luke goes on to illustrate this teaching in action, 37. 
When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went and reclined at the table. This Pharisee is most likely a wealthy or upper middle class kind of person, and Jesus is never one to turn down a free meal from a rich person. That's just something you should know about Jesus, and I intend to follow his example in. (laughs) Now, when the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Now, um, just to make sure if there's any middle schoolers in the room like my son, this is not about hygiene, okay? This is not like a you don't have to wash your hands before dinner kind of, Jesus didn't do it, mom. It's not that at all. In the first century, I just need to say that because I have three kids, none of whom ever want to wash their hands, ever. It's a whole other teaching series. Um, In the first century, an elaborate ceremony had grown up inside pharisaical culture that had all sorts of rules and regulations about just the right way to wash your hands before a meal. I mean, literally the angle, the pitcher you would wash with, the kind of water, the direction you would let the water flow. And it sounds weird, but pharisaical culture as a whole, and this in particular, was an attempt to apply the Levitical code for the priest to all of Israel. So it was an attempt to get like mom and dad who are you know, making dinner for the family to hold them to the same standard as the priest at the temple who was about to make a sacrifice. There's all sorts more to it we don't need to go into, but in story after story, Jesus pays little to no attention to the religious traditions of his day, many of which he called just a heavy burden on top of the soul. He's just not interested in which direction you pour the water when you wash your hands before a meal. He's much more interested in the heart. Now, 39, he takes this as an opportunity. Then the Lord said to him, his host, this is fascinating, now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. So the Pharisees were well known for greed. Luke writes a few chapters later, the Pharisees, quote, loved money. You foolish people. And again, foolish here, it means not just, um, it's not just a moral word, it's an intellectual word. You're not thinking, you don't get it. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for you, what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Now, another metaphor from Jesus. To illustrate, I have here my favorite coffee mug, all right? So I'm a stickler. Anybody like really particular about what kind of mug you drink your coffee in? Hopefully I'm not alone here. I literally travel with this. Um, <laughs> why are you laughing? It matters a lot. It has to be ceramic. None of this glass stuff tastes good, but doesn't stay hot long enough. It's a whole thing. Metal. You people that drink out of metal, I just rebuke that in the name of Jesus. Um, <laughs> must be ceramic. So... Every day, I have coffee in this in the morning, and then most days for lunch, I make myself like a, a very Portland plant-based green drink that's like, you know, banana, spinach, almond butter, and then a bunch of expensive supplement stuff that just have vegetable stuff. Something about the gut microbiome. I don't know what that is, but I apparently spend a lot of money to make sure I have a healthy gut microbiome, all right? So I, I make this green drink, and it's basically sludge when it's fresh, all right? But if you put some ice cubes in it and you drink it fast, it's not too bad. So what I did is on Thursday, I, I, I made my green drink, and then I just left it just to bless all of you. And I put it in a, in a warm, dark cupboard for a couple of days. And then I just thought, man, what, what if I were to just pour you a cup of water in this right now and just say, have a drink? Or maybe just a little cup of coffee. Just would you like something? It, you, would, you would vomit. It's, it does not smell good. Let me say that. And this is Jesus' word picture 
for people who are religious and have the ex who focus on the external, who make sure that like I look right, I do the right things, I tithe the right percentage, I have all the religious trims and trappings down, but the interior, the inside, what we call the heart, which in biblical theology is this tripart of your thinking and your feeling and your desire, this fulcrum of your, your orientation toward the world, that part is unclean. There's greed in there, and as a result, it's rancid, and it's gross, and it's not helpful for people to receive from. And so Jesus' solution to that, that's, notice Jesus doesn't have just a critique, and then he's just an angry Twitter post, done. He ha- <laughs> yes, that's a whole other thing. But he, ha- he has an invitation for a way to change that heart, which a lot of us, if we're honest, we ha- we're like that. We look really good on the outside, we do the right things, but the interior of our heart, there's greed in there, there's egocentricity in there, there's fear in there, all sorts of stuff in there that's not pretty. And Jesus' solution or his invitation, his way out is 41, as for what's inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean to you. If you move toward generosity in both practice and in heart posture, that alone, just that simple act alone, will do wonders to clean out the interior of your soul. Then, 42, just about done with this part. (laughs) Don't get your hopes up. Woe to you, Pharisees. And again, woe is a fascinating, it's not actually a word. It's like a guttural expression. It's like the word, it's like the negative version of the word oh. Oh is not a word, it's just wonder, spontaneous delight. Woe is like the negative version of that. And you can imagine Jesus like with spittle on his beard, woe to you. And it could be that, but I take it as like almost like a guttural sigh, like a, ah, you guys, you're missing it. Woe to you Pharisees. Because you give God a tenth, in Greek that's a verb, it's the word that's translated tithe, which is just based on, it's kind of a long etymology there, based on a Hebrew word that just means 10%. So to, you give God a tenth, you tithe, you are mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. Now, um, Jesus is referring here back to Leviticus 27, 30 in the Torah, quote, a tithe of everything from the land we're to give, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, it belongs to the Lord, it is holy to the Lord. Now, they were reading this command to tithe from the Torah to the extreme, not just tithing like their crop or their, you know, in our language, in the knowledge economy, their salary, but tithing mint, which was, anybody of you like have like a little mint thing you grow in your patio or something? It's tiny, like this tiny little herb, and rue, which was just like basically a weed. It was like a edible, but you wouldn't really eat it, just a wild weed that would kind of grow in your backyard or something, to the minutiae. So they were tithing to the minutiae, the extreme, ultra-religious version of the Torah, but he goes on, you neglect justice and the love of God. You're missing the bigger picture of God's heart and generosity and the poor and the way that you view the world and your trust in God. 
Jesus here is referring back to, and again, some of it's lost in translation to English, but to a famous poem from the prophet Micah, most of you will recognize, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Here's the question. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Remember, this is the ancient world, so animals and plants are a form of currency. Shall I come before God with my money, with my offering? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of olive oil? If I'm rich and I give this extravagant, Solomonic kind of gift? And the answer is, not really. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And here's one of the most famous lines in the Hebrew Bible. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Read that last line with me. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's what Jesus is referring to. Meaning the Pharisees were missing the whole point of tithing while tithing to the nth degree. They were missing God's heart for the poor, justice and compassion and a humble, simple life of love. And then Jesus says this fascinating line, You should have practiced the latter, radical generosity toward the poor, without leaving the former undone. Meaning, this is not Jesus' critique of tithing. He's saying, that's great, well done, good job. You should have done that, but you missed out on Jesus' heart for the poor. Now, what does all this talk about tithing have to do with you and me? Well, The Swiss educational reformer Johann Pestalozzi argued that we learn at three levels or in three stages, what he called head, heart, and then hands. It's very similar to Dallas Willard's learning theory of VIM, which was an acronym for vision, intention, means, and his kind of shorthand for spiritual formation or the process by which we change. To change, we need, first of all, a vision in our head, a different way to be human. You can apply this to your spiritual formation, a life of agape, or to like a New Year's resolution to get in better shape or lose 10 pounds. You need a vision, any kind of change. You need a vision in your head, a compelling vision of a different way to be human. Then secondly, you need to make an intention, a settled decision in your heart, in that inner kind of fulcrum of your desire. Okay, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I want to change and become more like you fill in the blank. But then you're still not done, and this is where a lot of church culture goes wrong. We have great teachings and great aspirational, let's go do it, and then people just walk out the door and forget what was said or attempt through willpower to live the way of Jesus, and it doesn't work. Finally, you need the means to get an idea, a compelling vision from your head into your body, into your muscle memory. So if you want to run a half marathon, you need like a coach and you need a workout partner and you need three days a week you're going to run on a routine if you want to become a person of love. You need a regimen for that. How do I create space in my life to open up my heart to God, so on and so forth. So Jesus here is talking about money on all three levels. Let's take them one at a time. First off, Jesus is talking about our view of the world, his kind of vision in our mind's eye. Let me give you a five-minute, I promise, time me, biblical theology of money and generosity from like a 30,000-foot flyover view of the Hebrew Bible, or what we call the Old Testament, which is the story. This is the story. I'm about to give you the short version that Jesus would have grown up hearing as a first-century Jew in Nazareth, and at the same time in the mystery that is Jesus, 
inspired by the Spirit as a member of the Trinitarian community of love. Genesis 1, the world is created by God as an act of generous, creative love. The verb gave, if you just reread Genesis 1 and 2 in your own time, the verb gave is used over and over and over and over. God gave, God gave, God gave, God gave plants, God gave water, God gave food, God gave and he gave. The image in Genesis is of God as the generous host, the world as his kind of home, humanity as his honored guest and even partners in the human project who eat at his table, who enjoy his hospitality and his love. But this Edenic moment is short-lived. Generous three, into the generous host home comes the serpent with a whisper that God isn't who he claims to be. You can't trust this God or his vision of abundance or a life with him, that he has an agenda, that you need to take your life into your own hands. You need to take care of number one, and to do that, you need to redefine good and evil for yourself. It's the core of the temptation. Don't trust God on his vision of a good life or a happy life. Redefine good and evil you know better than God based on the desire in your heart and the voice in your head. Tragically, they do it, and they fall into what last week we called the egoic operating system. There's a telling line in Genesis 3 where we read of Eve, she took some of the fruit and ate it. That key word there, took. We've been reading God gave, God gave, God gave, God gave, God gave, she took. This is a key, subtle, but from a literary, those of you that are into literature, this is a key little word and line, saying that there is a shift here in the human condition from a heart posture of receiving life as a gift from a generous provider to taking life as a scarce resource we deserve, a shift from a grateful heart of trust to an egoic heart of greed. This is the issue in Genesis telling of all underneath all of the other issues of the human condition. This is one way to frame what's gone wrong in the human condition. The shift from gratefully receiving to greedily taking. This is why money is 25% of what Jesus had to say, because it's actually about this deep inner posture of the human soul. No surprise, Genesis 4, the first story has to do with two different heart postures. First story after this has to do with two different heart postures toward God and money. You have two brothers, sons of Adam and Eve. Abel comes before God with an offering of the first fruits of his crop. This is the beginning of a theology of first fruits in the Old Testament that later develops into a theology of tithing. Basically, a farmer, again, agrarian economy, no, no currency as we have it, but a farmer would give the first fruits of his or her harvest in both gratitude to God and trust that more would come, that the rain would continue to fall, that God would continue to provide. So it was an act not just of gratitude, but an act of trust. Transposed into the modern economy where money is, you know, numbers on a website, not a plant in your backyard. It's the, it's the difference, as I understand it, from getting paid and right off the top of your paycheck, you give God a tithe or some other percentage in gratitude and in trust that God will take care of your needs versus like you get paid and then you cover your mortgage or your rent, which is a little bit more really than you should spend, and your car payment, which is a little bit more than you should spend, and you do your things and you get a couple things you want and you really want that new jacket and then you see if you have anything left over. 
and hopefully you really want to give something to God out of what you have left over. That's the difference in heart posture, as I understand it. Cain has the latter heart posture. Of course, there's different ways to read that story, and I could be off in that, but I think that the writer of Genesis wants us to see how the two different worldviews of abundance and scarcity, of first fruits, and of a heart of kind of religious do what you have to do, how they now run in parallel in the human story. And if you know that story, what does it lead to? Anger, envy, and in the end, fratricide. Genesis 5 on tells the story of Cain and his line after Abel is killed off. His view of the world worked out now generation over generation over generation. Read it on your own time. It's not a pleasant, fun pick-me-up. But in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to start a new family line and says, I will bless you, you will be a blessing. Another way to translate that is, I will be generous with you, and you will in turn be generous with other people. I, I want to do for you what I eventually intend to do for all of humanity, flow good into your life and turn you into a conduit to share with those in need. In Genesis 14, interesting, one of the first things that Abraham does after that blessing from God is tithe with his money to a mysterious character named Melchizedek. He's not commanded by God to tithe. This is hundreds of years before the Torah of Levitical Code. There's no command. He just does it. You're reading, you're thinking, That's, where did that come from? He just, he just, his impulse, his heart impulse was, ah, I'm blessed. Let me give back 10%. Now, this is then later codified in the Torah, once you get into Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Most people don't realize this. Um, there were multiple tithes, so one went to, you know, the priests in Jerusalem, some went to the Levites in your hometown, some went to kind of basically a, a system of social welfare, welfare or care for the poor in your area. So scholars estimate that the tithe was actually not 10%, contrary to popular opinion. It was closer to, and it's hard to know exactly, but it was closer to 23.24% of your annual income. But tithing, that, by the way, I did not come up with that. That's like from some really nerdy smart person somewhere else. But tithing is written into the legal code of the nation to index their heart away from like the posture of Cain and toward that of Abel, toward a mindset of abundance. But very long story short, here's the whole Old Testament. They do not become the people God had in mind. They end up stingy, the very people that God set free from oppression become the oppressors. The people that God called to be the light of the world and invite the nations into God's love become ethnocentric and racist at times. One way of reading the story of Israel is as of one of squandered generosity, all of which leads us right to the doorstep of Jesus. You get to the end of the Old Testament, you're thinking, how is God going to fix the human heart? It comes as no surprise that the writers frame Jesus as an act of God's generosity. Think of the classic John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave. There he is. God the generous lover. Just he gave, he gave, he gave. That's who he is. To love is to will the good of another. Generosity is a form of love. Or you could say that love is a form of generosity. And Jesus is the example of this par excellence. And for Jesus, God is a father. And Jesus' vision of the world, which is very different than ours, where he would argue that much of our thinking is upside down. In his vision, God is a father who is beyond generous, a giver. 
We're his sons and his daughters. We live in his home, under his roof. There's plenty for everybody, plenty to spare. Think of Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the, his like, I call it his hippie teaching, but like, look at the birds of the air. And it's not naivety. It's not this kind of sanguine 1960s, like, it's all good, that only upper middle class people ever say. It's not that. There's a whole lot going on there. But Jesus looks out on the world, and he sees a world of abundance. He sees God's generosity and provision and care. He sees what really matters, the kind of people we become and the relationships that we develop. And in Jesus' world, in his worldview, we can live without fear. We can live a life with no anxiety. We can trust God. We can release the need for control. And we can share with those in need, our friends and even our enemies. This is a beautiful way to see the world. If you have faith to trust that the story Jesus and the writers of the Bible tell is the way things really are. Secondly, Jesus is talking about the interior architecture of our hearts, a layer deeper. Billy Graham once said, if a person gets his attitude toward money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area of his life. That's right in line with Jesus' teaching from Luke 11. Think back to last week and how for Jesus, the most important thing in life is learning to give and receive love. If love and generosity are two sides of the same coin, two different ways of saying the same thing, that means becoming a person of love means becoming a person of generosity, that it's a core facet. Our money is a core facet to becoming people of love. Jesus wants his apprentices not just to tithe, but to become the kind of people who are generous by nature. I love this from David Brooks. When people make generosity part of their daily routine, they refashion who they are. The interesting thing about your personality, your essence, is that it is not more or less permanent like your leg bone. Your essence is changeable like your mind. Every action you take, every thought you have changes you, even if just a little, making you a little more elevated or a little more degraded. If you do a series of good deeds, the habit of other-centeredness becomes gradually engraved into your life. If you lie or behave callously or cruelly towards someone, your personality degrades and it's easier for you to do something even worse later on. The people who radiate a permanent joy have given themselves over to lives of deep and loving commitment. Giving has become their nature, and little by little they have made their souls incandescent. We all know people like this. Even as I'm reading this, I'm thinking about my lovely wife down here, who I think is one of the least materialistic people I've ever met. And she has this inner incandescence, people who just radiate joy, who just live with generosity, freedom, and compassion. That's not a coincidence which ties right into Jesus' third level of means or hands. At a third level, Jesus is talking about the practice of tithing. Now, at first glance, a kind of a cursory read, his view of tithing is negative. As the Pharisees illustrate, you can tithe and still keep your hard heart. You can give 10%, sure, or 23.24%, or 24.23, whatever it was, a quarter of your income and still have a heart that is racked by greed. If you let it become a religious guilt trip or a kind, more likely for them, of spiritual vanity. 
But notice that Jesus doesn't say you should not have tithed throughout the baby with the bathwater. He says you should have done more, not less, and not in a heavy burden kind of way, in a heart posture kind of way. As with all of the practices, or what most people call the spiritual disciplines, and notice he uses the word here of practice, it's so easy to lose sight of the why behind each one. Whether we're talking about tithing or Sabbath or community or church on Sunday, it's so easy to put your body in this pew, to give 10% of your income, to fast one day a week, whatever your rule of life is. It's so easy to do it and to forget, wait, why am I doing this again? And what's the heart and what's the vision and who am I becoming through this practice? We have to always come back to the truth that all of the practices are a means to an end. The end is not to tithe or to Sabbath or go to church every single week or except when I'm really sick or on vacation or whatever the thing is. The end is to become people of love and freedom, become people who mirror God and mimic the Father to the world. Practices are how we index our heart through our mind and our body in the direction of life in Jesus' kingdom. As best as I can tell, for Jesus, tithing is a practice by which we move our heart away from fear and greed and discontentment and injustice and toward what Psalm 23 calls a life without lack. It's how we cultivate a heart of gratitude Trust, no anxiety, peace, love, compassion for those in need, and freedom. How many of you want that, not the former? Now, this all raises the question, is tithing for today? Short answer is, depends who you ask. <laughs> Some argue yes, in particular in the Pentecostal tradition and the evangelical tradition, which make kind of a heavy emphasis on tithing, and you are to tithe in those traditions to your local church. Others push back and argue, no, this is the only time that tithing is mentioned in the New Testament. That's an argument from silence, but there's no other command in the New Testament to tithe. There's a lot about money in the teachings of Jesus, a lot about money in the writings of the New Testament. It's very clear where to give to the poor, very clear where to give to the leaders or the pastors of a local church. That's very clear. Very clear where to live in generosity and simplicity, so on and so forth. This is the only mention of tithing, unless I'm missing something, in the entire New Testament. And it's not clear where exactly you would tithe under the new covenant. Like, there's no more temple. So, like, how, where, okay, is it to the local church? Many people just assume yes, and that makes sense to me. Um, but it's not clear where or how much. Is it 10%? Is it 23.24? Is it whatever? So, some people argue and push back and say, no, it's not for today. Now, it seems like some of those people do that as an excuse to get out of tithing or as an excuse to get out of tithing to a local church because they'd rather give to a nonprofit or many other wonderful things than like pay the electricity bill for the new building or whatever it is. But most people that I know that push back on this, it's from the opposite direction. It's most of them are upper middle class and they push back on this because they just say, for many people in particular in a city like Portland, I know this is not all of you, but for a lot of you, 10% is just really not nearly enough. And the call of Jesus is to a life, if grace is anything, it's to a more radical lifestyle than anything else, not less. Now, in that debate, who is right? I don't know. I'm inclined to think the latter is more in line with the New Testament, that we should give to the church, give to the poor, that's crystal clear, but that the percentage should vary from person to person, and for most of us, 10% is not enough. But honestly, I don't really care who's right. I don't really care if it's a binding command or not, at least for me, I want to do this. 
I find life in it. I find freedom in it. And the discipline of a percentage, I find really helpful, not just in budgeting, but in my spiritual formation. And the discipline of a percentage to the church that I'm a part of, I also find really helpful to keep my heart here and not like at brunch with a mimosa or whatever. I find that really helpful. Now, for those of you who want to get started, um, at the risk of, you know, the specifics, here's just a few best practices. Now, let me say this loud and clear. I'm about to give you four best practices. None of these, to my knowledge, are commanded in the New Testament. This is just for your consideration. This is what I do. This is what a lot of the leaders at our church do. And this is what a lot of people that I look up to and respect, in particular in how they handle money as a follower of Jesus. This is just my synthesis of what a lot of people do. This is just for your consideration to get practical. First off is tithing. Ideally, 10% to your local church. I've always done this since I was a little kid. My parents would give us an allowance every Saturday night. We'd sit like on my parents' bed, and it was, you know, $10, and you take the dollar out. We had like old school, like church envelopes, you know, and you put it in, anybody remember that? You put it in the envelope, and that next morning we give it. I still, my dad gave me a, a giving statement from when I was like six or seven, and it was a giving statement for my church for like $11.46 or something like that. Shows you how cheap my dad was. My goodness. So this is just in my muscle memory. I've always done this. I give 10% to, to Bridgetown. I, I intend to always do this. I see no reason why I would ever um, change. And uh, if that's way too much for you, for all sorts of reasons, whether it's because of debt or lifestyle or poverty or whatever, all sorts of reasons, some legitimate, some not, um, then just start, again, with all of this, start where you're at. So if 2% is that's the growth edge for you, beautiful. Just consider an adjustment to your lifestyle before you write it off. Again, first fruits, not leftovers. Second is a blessing fund. Um, what a lot of us do is after that, we just set aside a sum of money. For some people, it's 1% of their income. For other people, it's a huge chunk of money. For some people, it's 25 bucks. A sum of money each month just to bless people. So most of us start with the poor. Something like sponsor a child is a great way, especially if you have a family, to keep your family involved and, and keep your mind before that or give to a nonprofit. And then um, often just have some cash on hand to pay for somebody's dinner or a medical bill of somebody that you know in the church. Or often we just, we literally have an envelope. We're super old school. We use cash. And it's so weird when I go to like these little trendy coffee shops and I'm like, can you break a 50? It's like, I just got paid. This is my money for the month or whatever, you know? And, but it's really helpful. And so we literally have this cash envelope and it just kind of sometimes is empty and sometimes it gets really big. We're like, oh, we can help meet that need. Our favorite thing to do is like when somebody's sick or in pain just to go buy, like somebody did this for us years ago and it was like our favorite thing. We just buy like two bags of expensive groceries. Like go somewhere where rich people go, like Whole Foods. And we like buy all the stuff that we want to buy but we can't afford it or if we can, we feel guilt. And we just get it for somebody else. It's, and then maybe have a little bit of it on the way. And just, and give it. And it's so, I'm just trying, it's so fun to do. Like, this is so joyful to do. Some kind of just a blessing fun. Third is the idea of a graduated tithe. That's technical, uh, it's not my language, that's kind of out there. Used for a practice where as your income goes up, as it does for not all, but many of you as you age, it's a very young church in an urban context. For many of you, your income will be more 10 years from now than it is now. Um, the idea is that the percentage that you give goes up with it from 10% or 2% or wherever you start to who knows what, there's no limit on that. Instead of raising, the basic idea is that instead of raising your standard of living, which is the normal thing to do, 
buy the new car, move to the bigger apartment, or again, it's Portland, just eat out every single night, which is how we blow our money. It's not materialism here, it's hedonism, so you need to think about it through that lens. Um, instead of raising your standard of living, you raise your standard of giving. So you make, you know, 30 grand a year or whatever, to tithe on that is 10%, you give three grand over a year or something, but let's say over a decade, you've done really well, and now you're making 100 grand a year, 150 grand a year, whatever it is, you're killing it in your job, or you started a business, or you're whatever your thing is. Um, some would say 10% at that point doesn't mean what it used to. And do you really need that much money to live on? You're like, I have three kids, my cost is now 10 times what it was when I was 23 so much compassion for you. This is just an idea. Um, I know some people that give 20% or 30%. I know a lot of people that live on 49% of their income just to give more than they make, and they're not all rich people. I know some people that are middle class or lower middle class that live this way. I know some rich people that give 90%. I know one young entrepreneur is a friend of mine who's killing it right now in his work, and hit one of his life goals is to live on 1% of his income. He's driving a kind of old Volkswagen Jetta right now, and he just closed a gigantic business deal. He just doesn't care. That's not what he's in it for. Something beautiful about that. My wife and I are giving 20% right now, which is a big step for us. I love it. It feels so good for our heart. We'll see where it goes. Fourth is radical gifts. These are sporadic, meaning you don't really budget for this. You can, but it's more as a need arises and you feel the clear direction of the Spirit of God in your heart, you give a large, kind of radical, sacrificial gift. I've only done this a few times. I'm doing it, we're doing it this year with Holiday Park. Many of us are giving what for us, based on our income, is a radical gift. And it's not like I'm gonna budget that for next year or whatever. It's like we're gonna make a radical shift this year and on how we do some things to give to something that we feel the Spirit has put on our heart. Now, to end, if all of this sounds freaking insane to you, you're like, do you realize how much less hummus at Shalom Yall that is? <laughs> Any idea? Let me just say this as we near the end. Remember, this only makes sense if you trust Jesus' vision of the world. If you're not living, basically all of Jesus' ethical teachings don't make any sense if you're not living in the kingdom of God. If you're not living where God is your father and the most important thing in your life is life with Jesus, becoming like Jesus and doing what he's on about. If that's not your orientation to the world, most of the ethical teachings of the New Testament, sex, money, anything, they, they sound crazy, right? Even though there's data behind all of them, so on, but it just doesn't make sense. But if you live in a world of abundance, or there's plenty, even if you don't make very much money and you have this and you have tragedy, but you, your heart, you, you see the provision of God and the community of God around you, and you trust God and you just relax and you share what you have, whether it's a lot or a little. And if you trust Jesus that a generous life is far happier than a stingy one, but if you don't buy Jesus' vision of reality, if you don't if you don't come to trust that he knows better than us, what will lead to a happy life? That his vision of the good life is much better and there's no agenda than the marketing campaign of our phone and the world. If you trust him, this makes perfect sense. And so what I would just say is before you write Jesus off, last thought for the day, I would encourage you just to consider the prophet Malachi's famous words about tithing. He writes this, 
Ever since this is God in the first person, ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. This is Israel at the, the height of its rebellion. Return to me. This is God's heart posture. And I will return to you. It's the heart of a father. But you ask, how are we to return? Like, how do we come back to God? Some of you are even asking that question this morning. Will a mere mortal rob God, God says. Yet you rob me. But you ask, what are you talking about? How are we robbing you? God's answer, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, the only place I know of where God commands us to test him. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, again, agrarian society, and the vines in your field will not drop their fruit before it's ripe. You'll close every single business deal you attempt, right? Says the Lord Almighty, then all the nations will call you blessed. There's that Abrahamic language. For yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now, there are a few ways of reading this. I think there are a lot of misreadings of this. A lot of people that turn this into like a name it and claim it, like give God money and he'll make you rich kind of thing, or manipulate gullible people through this. And I'm not exactly sure what all of it means, and we'll explore more of it in the spring in our practice. But let me say this. I think bare minimum, God is saying this. Test me. Test my vision of reality. Just try it out. See what happens. Just try generosity, try tithing, and just see what happens in your heart. Try it for six months. Just try. Do something radical, change your financial, change your budget for six months, and just see what happens to your heart. See if in six months, just literally test Jesus' theory out. See if he's right. See if in six months you feel deprived and behind on your bills and angry, or if you feel more free, more content, more generous, more joyful than you have ever been before. To end, you know, I can't stand up here and say that I have all of this figured out. We're teaching on simplicity in the spring, and so I have six months to figure all of this out. <laughs> um, I, I honestly, I've been reading on this and researching this for about five years, and normally I go off and I do these research projects and I come back with what I think and I synthesize it. I'm like more confused now than when I started. And by that, I just mean I have a lot of questions. Um, well, the main problem is that wealth is relative. We judge people, wealthy or poor, based on how much money or resources they have in relation to other people. It's really tricky in a globalized world. There's a massive disparity in a nation where we live in a coastal city, in a city where many of us live in the center of the city. It's just really tricky, right? So I'm not ready to stand up here and say, I have this figured out. Follow me as I follow Christ on this one. I wish I could say that to you. I still have a lot of questions. Um, I, live very, I woke up this morning in a beautiful home. I'm wearing nice clothes. I had heart coffee to drink this morning. So I'm not up here to say, like, I, I'm the, the mini incarnation of Jesus. Do exactly what I do. But I can tell you this, that we've been in fits and starts very slowly moving toward Jesus' vision of reality. And we're giving more this year than we've ever given before. And I can tell you this, I feel more free more relaxed, less worried. I feel more joyful. I feel more grateful than I have ever felt in my life. And I don't think that's a coincidence. 
that our finances are very different than they've ever been before. And so, again, I'm not saying I have this figured out. I'm not remotely saying that. I have so far to go. Judge me all you want. I judge myself too, all right? I'm just saying, test me. Not me. Jesus. <laughs> don't test me. Don't even email me. I don't even want to hear from you. <laughs> Try it out. See what happens. See if it is not happier to give than to receive. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. As many of you know, we're nearing the end of a year-long capital campaign to raise money for and buy this beautiful historic church building right on the inner east side of the urban core of Portland, Oregon. We can't wait. We're in the remodel project right now. Hope to move in in March of 2020. But right now, we're just raising money as a church to pay for this beautiful space. If you're a podcast listener, follower from another church, another city, and anything at all moves in your heart and you would like to give back and contribute toward our church and this project over and above whatever you give to your local church, which we're all for. If you have any questions or thoughts, just visit bridgetown.church/give or shoot us an email for more information. Grace and peace.